This is episode 166 of Alohomora for November 28, 2015. everyone and welcome to a very chilly November episode of Alohomora. I am Rosie Morris. I'm Alison Sigurd. And I'm Kat Miller. And our very special guest today, you may know him from past episode or two, um, Steve Vander Ark, writer, writer and creator of the Harry Potter Lexicon. Hello, Steve. Hey, how you doing? Oh, we are Good wonderful. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, six books later, but glad to have you back. <laughs> Been a long time. Well, I keep I keep watching my email, wondering if I'm going to get invited back, and I just kind of had gone to despair, but then I got the email, so I feel better now. Oh, good. We're glad. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit what you've been up to over at the Lexicon. Oh, uh, oh, there's a new a new version of the Lexicon coming out very very soon. Um, we're currently in a closed beta, um, and if anybody wants to be part of it, just uh, let me know. But uh, it's going to be uh, basically the whole goal was to get it to be responsive and. Like 21st century, like the web, instead of looking like 1999. So we've been working very, very hard on this, like for the last two and a half years. And we've got 30 editors from all over the world working on it. So it's getting there very, 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 very soon. It'll go live. Wow. So it's going to be mobile friendly and everything then. Mobile friendly and everything. But it won't look like Pottermore. <laughs> Thank goodness oh, for that. Pottermore. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is when we were designing our homepage, we actually were starting to use big blocks of color just to kind of get a sense of things. Mm-hmm. And then Pottermore came out, and we're like, whoa, hold on there. We've got to change some stuff because we didn't want to look like that. So, Right. Totally Not understandable. That, you know, I have anything against Pottermore, but. Mm. Well, well, we'll just zip our lips on that one. Uh, um, where can listeners get in touch with you if they want to be a part of the beta? Oh, probably the easiest way is to email me, uh, steve at hp-lexicon.org. Perfect. Perfect. Um. And remind us what house you identify as. Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. Perfect. Okay. Oh, two eagles, two puffs. <laughs> Yay. Perfect. <laughs> Although Allison's a flip-flop, but today yeah. she's going to be a puff. And just before we hop into our recap, we want to remind you guys that this week we are going to be discussing Deathly Hallows Chapter 16, which is Godric's Hollow. A very sad chapter, but so good. But before we get to this chapter, we're going to go recap a couple comments from our last chapter, which was a very long discussion. And you guys kind of continued that by posting really long comments. (laughs) So there were a lot of them um, to go through. So I could only pick a couple. I'm so sorry. There There were a lot of really good ones. So make sure you go read all of them. And the first one comes from Lupinionated. (laughs) Haha, <laughs> Lupin. That, that's a really good username. Okay. Very clever. <laughs> Who says, so this might be a stupid comparison, but I was thinking about GAMP's laws in terms of files on a computer. Summoning food would be similar to using the search function to find a file. Transforming it could be akin to editing the file, and increasing the quantity is like copy and paste. In all of these things, the file's information is already there, meaning that all of these tasks can be carried out with ease. To create that same file without using computer programs and to go through the effort of writing it out in binary would be immensely difficult, if not completely impossible. I think that food and magic might be similar. We see that it is possible to conjure creatures that can be used as food. Desk pig, anyone? But I think the general consensus is that this isn't a true form of life and thus wouldn't have the nutritional value that a natural creature would have. 
It could be possible that creating something that would nourish the body and not just fill the stomach requires magic that witches and wizards just aren't capable of, hence Gamp's Law. On another note, that safe behind Dumbledore's portrait means that the Dumbledore is an actual physical thing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I, I thought this was interesting because l- last week we talked a lot about, okay, so how exactly does Gamp's Law work? Yeah. Um, and I think this is a really good metaphor to kind of help explain why it can do what it does. I just like that somebody has taken my software angle from two episodes <laughs> ago and applied it to something else. So Lupinionated, good for you. But I like it. I think this is um, a very clever analogy for Gam's Law. And I, I would tend to believe that that's probably true. I'm just uh, just contemplating the the, the, the the point. I think it's really good because the problem we have is that we have phrases in, like, in Chamber of Secrets where Molly conjures up a meal and you know i mean what exactly is she doing and i think you know i hadn't i haven't listened to the whole discussion from last time so i i didn't want to jump in and start repeating things but i think this is a really good analogy yeah i think i think it's a clever way to look at it Um, yeah and with that conjuring up the meal you know that's if she's going to be using ingredients to make the food rather than just summoning it out of thin air then that's like mm -hmm. editing the files isn't it so you've got all of the component parts it's just putting them all together Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what we do when we cook. Exactly. Right. It's just yep. thinking about it in a different way. <laughs> yeah. It's just that you can make the sauce spray out of your wand, which would be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be much easier, much less cuts with a knife, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I also like too that, that um, Lupinionated brought up binary and, you know, how creating the, the file without using a computer and going through the effort of using binary. I, I don't know. That's just pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, to think that, like, maybe with Molly's thing, um, for example, we have, like, computer programs that give templates, like Word and whatever, for things that you create that you just are adding to. So maybe that that's another way that this works, too. Yeah, we get yeah. so used to using the shortcuts and the ready-made things that we forget about the hard work that's gone in on the other side. So yeah. magic's probably got all that hard work in it. It's just that it's been... <laughs> simplified and simplified over centuries that they they don't even think about it anymore they just do it Hmm, that's true very good all right our next comment is one of those long ones and it's from hufflepuff skein um who's talking about uh michael's idea about the physicality and kind of interaction of horcrux objects And they say, I just wanted to recap the thoughts, see what everyone thinks, and pose an extension uh, as a reply to myself. So the ring, as Michael mentioned, the ring is highly interactive as a wearable, something that you engage with by putting it on and then keeping it on or taking it off. As to be mentioned for the locket below, I also think the placement of this wearable item is also interesting. Being on the hand, this might relate to the work or the skills or the tasks in the sense of manual labor carried out by the bear. The interactive nature of the diary is pretty clear in both the physical sense and emotional sense as Ginny pours out her feelings onto it. This could relate to the communicative aspect of the bear, or perhaps by extension the social aspects of the bear. The locket is another wearable, and the bear must interact with it physically for it to be worn, but Eric also emphasized the importance of the placement of this wearable near the heart as the symbolic location of the emotions or soul, and so relating to the spiritual aspects of the bear. Michael mentioned that the physicality of the cup is important, whether one drinks from it or holds it as a container of some substance. This could relate to the intake aspects of the bear in the sense of need and requirements for living. As the last wearable, Michael mentioned that the diadem connects to the brain as the center of thought and consciousness. 
This relates to the bear's intellect and perhaps even in some sense the source of their magic or their magical skill, as opposed to intuition or emotion associated with spells like Expecto Patronum. I really liked Allison, that's me, Allison's idea about the physicality of Nagini as a weapon. You could also think of Nagini as a nourisher for Voldemort when he was drinking her milk, and so this may relate to a dependence aspect of the bear. If taken in the sense of a weapon, perhaps this could relate to the interpersonal power or dominance aspects of the bear. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so many things. That was really cool. Yeah, I, I like that it seems to be I, – I like this breakdown of the Horcrux is – Horcruxes? Horcrux I? No, Horcruxes. Um, I guess I really never thought of them in terms of the senses before and the different parts of the body that they may affect when being worn or used. I think that's super interesting. I, I really liked that about this comment, sort of kind of how it's it's how you interact with the world and each of them kind of relates to that. The diary – um, kind of interspersed with all of these wearable items and, and we've kind of gone hand, heart, head but then the diary seems to be quite a different thing compared to the others um, they say that about kind of the emotional sense that Jeannie pours her feelings into it and I always kind of, you've got this idea of the soul being split so many times in in the in the books and the fact that the first Horcrux we get introduced to is a, is a diary um and you know with with your emotional pouring your feelings out into it people say that you pour your heart and soul into things um mm. so just that kind of parallel and that yeah. idea that maybe if we've got the ring on the hand um the locket to be the heart the, the the diadem is the head the diary kind of represents the soul as it's kind of embodied um emotional thoughts so yeah i really like that idea of th- this different breakdown of all the different things yeah, and the diary, too, is a little bit of all of them. I mean, kind of like yeah. somebody's yeah. soul, you know? It's your heart, it's your head, it's um, the other things that you said. Hi, <laughs> rhymed. <laughs> it makes you wonder kind of the the other Horcruxes that were planned and never came to fruition. You know, the diadem mm-hmm. happened, and but Nagini was never meant to be the, the last Horcrux. Whatever it was that was going to be Harry. you know, Harry's Horcrux. Yeah, when when Harry was was killed, or was meant to be killed. Right. Well, I, I wonder. What would have been. I wonder if he was trying to get the sword of Gryffindor, which would still kind of have the same, or at least the, like using it as a weapon, it would kind of have yeah, the same true. impact as Nagini for that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they symbolize kind of the same thing, I suppose. Hmm. I really like this because I never really looked for or seen a pattern in the different horcruxes except for things that belong to the founders kind of yeah. a thing and all of a sudden this puts it in a whole different light and it kind of gives everything a it puts you into the I hate to say it into the mind of Voldemort why was he choosing certain things it seemed random to me until I read this and I think oh that makes sense it's kind of like I'm taking myself apart but it's all part of myself so yeah. interesting so deep I don't think Voldemort had um <laughs> I don't think he was thinking about this. I don't. I, I wonder if Joe has thought about this, <laughs> the different aspects. Yeah, I think I think it is interesting though to see it this way because it's like you're splitting your soul, like the embodiment of like yourself, your identity. Usually, is how people think of souls, and to split it into these different pieces and kind of siphon them off to different objects, like that that have different parts of your identity and yourself. Yeah. Um, 
yeah. It's very clever. Very yeah. clever. No, that was good job. I start thinking about. I start thinking about the reactions of those um, horcruxes when they were destroyed. The locket mm. was all about the heart and all about oh. the, the, because it was it was Ron's feelings about himself, but especially about his relationship with Hermione. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, but I don't think we can carry that too far because we didn't watch the diadem die. Per, oh, but per we can and, because the diadem was destroyed in fire, and then we had the whole snake thing chasing after us. And you know, um, the head is very much. Um, the place of anger. You are hot-headed, mm. so we've got oh. the idea of fire there. Mm -hmm. That's quite cool. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. So it's very, very interesting. Okay, and that's the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, yeah. we have to thank Hufflepuff Skeen for you know three years worth of amazing comments like this. Now, really, we, we are in so much debt to you and your amazing theories, both Hufflepuff, Hufflepuff Skeen and everyone else who has donated their amazing brain thoughts to our show. So we need to get this now. we need to get this person adding commentary on the lexicon. We do? We're, we're adding okay. commentary onto entries and that's this would be beautiful. There you go. You've been recruited Hufflepuff Skeen. <laughs> yes. Get in touch. Get in touch. I need you. <laughs> well before we end comments we also I also want to give a quick little shout out to Weird Sister. Your comment was too long to put on but it was brilliant. So everyone head on over to the main site and read it. It was it was about kind of the discussion we had last week about the parallels between um Jews in World War Two and goblins in the series, and it was it was fascinating and beautifully explained. So everyone head out and read Weird Sisters' comment. That sounds fabulous. I haven't had a chance to peruse the site yet this week, so mm, I'm excited. Yeah, sounds good. It was just a little too long to include. Otherwise, I would have. But we'd have another two and a half hour episode. In <laughs> <laughs> well, the lengthy discussions also carried on into the podcast question of the week and. There were 20 or 23 or something comments that were there when I was checking um, to, to get notes for today's show. Um, but some of them, you know, you had to click on read more several times to get to the end of the comment. And they are just amazing discussions um, about Ron and his feelings. Um, so before I read any of those out, um, here's a quick recap of what the question was. So in this chapter, meaning chapter 15, um, Ron Weasley becomes less of an active part in the trio. From simply yawning during a Horcrux discussion to leaving the room during Harry and Hermione's epiphanies, um, Ron experiences troubling thoughts in this chapter which lead to his departure. Which actions of Ron's are a result of well-reasoned thought, and which are emotional responses due to his wearing of the Horcrux? Would he have made the choices he did had he not been influenced by the Horcrux, or would he have still chosen his worry over his family without the Voldy soul influence? Um, and I thought this was a really interesting question. A lot of people said that they were kind of having issues with Ron and how whiny he is, um, particularly in this chapter. Um, but there were some really interesting kind of in-depth character analysis. Analysis? I don't know how you would say that word. Um, <laughs> and I've got four still quite lengthy um, comments to, to read and discuss. So... Here is the first one, and it is from I am Huffledore, hear me roar, and I love your username. Nice. <laughs> um, it says, Ron and Hermione, in my mind, are very cleverly placed metaphors for Harry's heart and mind as he goes on his journey to defeat Voldemort. Hermione is always the clever, methodical one that gives Harry insight and clarity in confusing situations, much like his mind. Ron is strong-willed and yet very vulnerable at the same time. His reactions are almost always reactions to his emotional side. In this way, he is much like Harry's own heart. 
When Ron does choose to leave, it is because of a cleverly placed metaphor on J.K. Rowling's part in which all lose heart. This also makes it more appropriate for Ron to be the one to abandon the group for a short time. Losing Ron is metaphorically the group losing heart in their daunting task. He is also the one most easily influenced by the locket because he is most most vulnerable in the group because he is the heart of the group. Therefore, he is reacting to the influence of the locket. This is also why he is given the Deluminator by Dumbledore. Dumbledore knows to give him the one thing that will allow him to find new hope. This in turn he shares with the group and gives the trio new hope in their quest to defeat the Dark Lord. So it's really just saying that, you know, Ron is the absolute heart of the group and therefore is the kind of the emotional undercurrent throughout all of the tasks that they face in this book. Do you guys agree? I think it puts it very well. Yeah, Yeah. no, I think this is this is really interesting and I, I think that's always been a really good kind of analysis of the trio and how supportive Ron and Hermione are of Harry and kind of what their roles are in helping him finish his mission. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's, I've never thought about though, like the, pa- the part where they say that it's rolling, making us all lose heart because he disappears for a little while. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I like that. And and I think too, it's really the only thing that could make Hermione even for a second reconsider what they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, because her heart is also with Ron. So she's not that the group isn't just losing his heart, so to say, but it's losing Hermione's kind of as well. Yeah. I think that, you know, the undercurrent of the amount of symbolism and the amount of kind of emotion that went into chapter 15 is partly why your episode was so long last week, Alison. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, so to have that reflected succinctly um, in this comment. Yeah. It's, I would agree that, you know, that chapter is the one where everything is looking very bleak and they're all kind of losing, um, losing their way on their path. um, Mm -hmm. And they had to lose. So it's like the, it's like the order of the Phoenix part of (laughs) this. Yeah, pretty much. I was just thinking about the fact that, that Ron seems to fall off from the from the group he did in the quest for the um, Philosopher's Stone. He's the one that got left behind. Mm-hmm. And when they went looking in the Chamber of Secrets, he's got left behind. Poor Ron seems Ooh, to get left yeah. behind a lot. I think that's because sometimes you have to learn to follow your head and not your heart. Ooh. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't know if that's always true. <laughs> that but I feel like sometimes it's true. <laughs> But your heart you know? will always return stronger. Right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably discuss this a, a bit more in a minute. So let's have another comment and see what else comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is from Slytherin Knight. This was an incredibly long response and it's a really, really interesting one. I would urge everyone to go and read it um, over on our site. But I've picked the third and shortest um, paragraph from that comment to to read out to you guys. Um, because it's quite a different way of looking at things, I think. And they say, all of Ron's adventures at Hogwarts were in Hogwarts outside of the fifth year. Um, It came with the comforts of a warm bed, plenty of food, being surrounded with of Dumbledore, McGonagall, etc. And I think that stunted Ron in a way that he couldn't handle the harsh realities that the trio would face on their journey in Deathly Hallows. Harry was easily the most prepared and Hermione was mentally tough and stubborn enough to batter her way through it. But Ron had always been surrounded by friends and family with the comforts of home. So to go from that to camping in the middle of the nowhere with no clue of what their next meal would be um, 
sure some of the blame could be put on Dumbledore for not telling or giving Harry all the information he needed, but Ron, in this commenter's opinion, um, just wasn't strong enough and hadn't gone through all the kind of suffering and toughening up that Harry and Hermione had done due to their childhoods. I think this just really goes back to the the point we were kind of talking about at the end of last week's episode of Ron and his privilege and how he's kind of starting to see what his privilege was. Yeah. Um, and that was, I mean, his loving, supportive family and his growing up in a really good situation. And um, yeah, I think I think that that's a really big character development for Ron is to see what he's had and to appreciate it a little bit more. Well, definitely, because he has always been um, the the Weasley who wants everything that he doesn't have. He wants wealth. He wants to be famous. He, he's always picking on Harry because, oh, God, you're famous. Everybody knows who you are. And I'm just Ron Weasley, Harry's stupid friend, you know. And I do think it's a, it's a important moment for Ron to realize, you know what, his life hasn't been all that bad. Maybe he wasn't rich and didn't have all the newest clothes and all that. But, um, you know, there are more to things in life than than money and being famous. So, And I think it's important that when, when we do rejoin Ron in a few chapters' time, um, he actually says, you know, how uncomfortable he was feeling with Bill and Fleur when he actually got there. Um, so it, it's quite an immediate growing up that he, he experiences as soon as he's left Harry and Hermione and and regained that kind of aspect of comfort he realizes that actually he really should be out there with his friends and he should be following through with the the difficulties that they were going to face um so Mm -hmm. he does learn that lesson quite quickly and um does kind of grow a lot from it because he's not stupid no matter what people tend to think about ron um he has he has good intuition and he's street smart as they say and so um I, i do think that's a very good point I'm glad that he regretted it immediately. Yeah. Oh yeah. Quite honestly, because well, I would I would think significantly less of him if he hadn't. Yeah. And and I think that kind of goes back to this kind of family aspect because I think he says something like how was I supposed to face everyone mm-hmm. if I had abandoned you, you know? And he he learned these this loyalty and kind of doing what's right from his family. And I mean, I yeah, I would have been disappointed if he hadn't carried the lessons he learned growing up through to this. Yeah, he wasn't being very Gryffindor in that moment, was he? No. And maybe that was due to the locket. So um, Socks Are Important says, um, I think Ron himself sums it up very nicely when he comes back. He says, it made me think stuff, stuff I was thinking anyway, but it made everything worse. The Horcrux didn't make Ron have the troubling thoughts. It simply amplified them. I think with the lack of progress that the trio are making... Ron starts to think about what his purpose is within the group. Harry is there because he has the information about the Horcruxes and the prophecy. Hermione is being helpful with her book and spell knowledge. And Ron just doesn't know what to do to be helpful. I think Ron is always worried about his family. I think without the locket, it is possible that Ron would have still left. um, But it would have taken him much longer to leave. The locket acted as a catalyst. Hmm. I... I like the part of this comment where it says that Ron just doesn't know what to do to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think that's incredibly true. I feel like Ron has always, while he has good intuition and he definitely brings something to the trio, I definitely think that he has probably personally thought or felt a little useless at times. And I feel like that that is 
probably a big part of how he felt in, you know, the time leading up to when he leaves is what, what am I here for? What am I doing? So I, I, I'm not entirely sure he would have left without the Horcrux because I think that Ron's loyalty and is one of his biggest strengths. Um, yeah, I don't think he would yeah. have left without the Horcrux. Yeah, not at all. I think I think he would have thought about it and would have wanted to in a way, but I don't think he would have. Yeah. I think that was all the Horcruxes. Yeah. Were. I don't think he would have left. I think he might have, like, done something maybe a little risky to try and get in contact with his family, but not abandon yeah. them. I could, I could see that. And I do think that if Hermione had been like, which would never in a million years happen, I'm out of here, Ron would have been like, all right, cool, I'm gone too. Because that would have given him a chance to yeah. Leave. But Hermione would never leave, so Ron would have never left. I think it's interesting. Yeah. I, I agree with the kind of the the really interesting thing being Ron doesn't know what to do to be helpful. Um, and if we're kind of thinking about what the character symbolizes and all that kind of thing, if Hermione is you know the head and the intellect, I think Ron's always seen himself as the the brawn of the group, um, as the um, you know it, all the way back in Philosopher's Stone, uh, Sorcerer's Stone, whatever you want to call it. He was the the knight on the on the horse that will go into battle and sacrifice yeah. himself, and mm. I think one of the things that the movie does really well in in reminding us in this scene is that Ron is injured at this point. The movie shows him as still looking very ill and still having his sling on and all of this kind of thing. He's been injured by the trip to um, the ministry, and so I think if if we want to continue all these kind of symbolism talks, we could see Ron almost as if. Um, he's kind of like a, um, an amputee sufferer at this moment. He's he's feeling like he's lost the one thing that he can do. He's mm. lost the strength. Oh, yeah. He's lost the ability mm-hmm. to do something. Um, and to protect, Yeah, he really. doesn't know who yeah. to be anymore. Yeah. Um, That's a good point. So he, he leaves to try and kind of escape the shame of that, I guess. Yeah, because you definitely forget that he's injured. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he did have a chunk of skin scooped out of his arm. <laughs> so gross. And he only had Hermione and Essence of Dittany to heal him as well. It's not like they had a, a team of healers de-splinching right. him. Yeah. Exactly. Of course, if I had to have somebody around, Hermione with some Essence of you know, Dittany would, would be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we would all... Uh... It does have a Shakespearean quality to the pound of flesh. That, uh, Very true. No. Oh, that's yeah. true. Well, our final comment comes from I Love Luna Lovegood. Um, And it says, Ron implies that he had a conversation with Hermione, which Hermione doesn't deny. He says things that he felt when he comes back and he accepts that it wasn't all the locket talking. The locket was clearly a catalyst and affected Ron the most for all of those reasons we have discussed. Um, He was more emotionally available, more emotionally vulnerable and has arguably always been more worried and insecure than the other two. Without the locket, I imagine things wouldn't have been as dark among the trio. Frustrations would have abounded, but they might have lasted longer together and gone to Godric's Hollow together, and then the love goods. Nothing really changes in the plot. I would point out that the question shouldn't narrow it to well-reasoned thought versus Horcrux influence. A third option is emotional fears he would have been feeling regardless. Clearly the Horcrux exaggerated those fears um, and even turned well-reasoned fears into serious worries and anxieties. And I think we we pretty much summarised all that in what we were saying earlier anyway, um, but that just kind of neatly rounds it off into one nice comment for us. Yeah, I, I think too that um, the thing that that's kind of here maybe a little bit missing is that uh, the Horcrux amplifies Ron's emotional reaction, um, which I think had he not had it on, had that influence, he would have been able to 
think more logically about his emotional reaction. He can't kind of do head over heart, you know, or yeah. like balance the two out. What what is the what is the was it a logical was it a good decision to wear that horcrux? No. Oh, no. I mean was that why don't they just leave it on a bedpost? Who cares? <laughs> you know, and what's gonna happen to it? If if anything that would come in there to get the horcrux would get them first. Well maybe that's part of the horcrux's magic as well. It doesn't just kind of harness your insecurities, yeah. but one of your insecurities is that if we leave it alone it might get lost. It's got some kind of safety net on it that it will you must keep me with you at all times. Quite often we see in the books that things happen which you can either say, okay, that's that's just an obvious obvious plot device, or there's something there's some force to the to to the magical items which kind of force things to go their way. Mm-hmm. I mean, why did why did Harry not take that horcrux off before he dived into the water? He took everything else off. Yeah. yeah. Why did I mean he's got a big heavy hork you know, <laughs> locket there. Why didn't it occur to him to take that off? Well, because we, I think that Horcrux does exactly what you say. It kind of no, no. You want me by you. We've seen you that on all of the Horcruxes, thinking about it. Yeah. We've seen, so mm-hmm. Dumbledore knows not to put on the ring, and yet he does it anyway. There's something compelling him to right. put it on the ring. Um, yeah, both Ginny and Harry feel compelled to write in that diary, not just read it, but yeah. write mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I know you mentioned Dumbledore in the ring. Yeah. I do think there were other motivations yeah, for oh, Dumbledore definitely. to put on the ring. The yeah. Hallows. But, um, yeah. But something had to overcome his incredibly well-honed sense of yes. common sense. Yeah. You know, when, I mean, when Harry uses the ring, he he touches the stone and moves it. He doesn't actually put the ring on his finger, which Dumbledore seems to do. Oh yeah, yeah. We we kind of t- touched on this last week too when um we were talking about uh I think it might have been Eric, brought up that there are instances in the magical world where things kind of walk away by themselves. Mm-hmm. So that could have been a concern. Um, or even just that Harry has to have things in front of his face <laughs> to remember that they're there a lot of times. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, it could have been it could have been that where he just felt the need to have it present all the time yeah. to remind him what he had to do. But it was a bad idea anyway. So those were our um, question of the week responses this week. Thank you, guys. There are so many more um, over on the site that I really do encourage you all to go and read. Um, They are so interesting. Thank you all so much. Um, Be listening out for our next question of the week at the end of the show. Ooh, all right. So here we are. We are at our chapter discussion. Chapter 16. Godric's Hollow. Okay, so here we are at chapter 16, and Ron is gone, Hermione is heartbroken, and Harry realizes that mm, Ron was probably right. News of Hogwarts reaches their ears via the obnoxious portrait of Phineas Nigellus, and it seems that Dumbledore's army is trying to reform. Yay! Harry finally convinces Hermione, I mean kind of convinces i mean she wants to do it on her own anyway but that they need to make the trip to his birthplace and with the help of mad eye's favorite brew they descend on the wizarding village and find the ghosts of christmas past Hmm. so um before we get to godric's hollow which is obviously going to be a very large chunk of this discussion i want to talk about a couple things that happen inside of the tent so they wake up seemingly the morning after ron has left and 
you know, they're packing up, getting ready to move, and Hermione's dawdling, as you do when you're kind of missing somebody and hoping that they'll come back. And Harry says that Ron would be able to re-enter the enchantments. So basically, once they move, Ron wouldn't be able to find them. But Ron has already left. So I'm wondering how he would be able to find them again. Is that just part because he was in the enchantments when they set them? I don't know if he could re-enter the enchantments, but he would at least know where they were, which he wouldn't. And so, I mean, at least if he, which he wouldn't after they moved. So at least if he knew where they were, he could come and start shouting for them and they would probably run out and grab him. Which but, is basically what he did later. Yeah. Remember he said he, he walked around, knew they were there, and was trying to figure out where when he did actually come back. So that makes but he, sense. But he can't find them unless... Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure. He has to somehow be able... Almost like the um, Fidelity's Charm. If you, yeah. if, you know, yeah. if you know where it is, you can go there. But but I think... Once they move to a new spot... Yeah. I, but I think with, with this particular enchantments... I mean, if you made some enchantments on your tent and then just stepped outside the perimeter and never be able to get back in again. That doesn't seem very safe. I think, um, I think because he was in within the enchantments when they actually cast them this time, that would allow him to Okay, re-enter. yeah. That makes sense. But then, yeah, he okay, wouldn't be Okay, so he's included because he was, yeah. you know, there when the enchantments were mm-hmm. cast. Otherwise, you would never be able to step kind of more than 10 feet away from your tent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, how do they know where that boundary is? Like, if it's invisible... No yeah, idea. that's a good point. How do they know when they've gone too far outside of it? And Hermione definitely. I wonder seems if it's just like that. a standard range yeah, or something. Maybe, maybe. Or, or it's kind of like wherever you walk around and cast them is where the boundary is. Yeah. So maybe you always just count kind of twenty steps away. I almost think of it like one of those one of those dog collar things that you kind of get the sensation <laughs> or a, you know. <laughs> Not to make light of it, but, you know, right. I mean, as you get close to that edge, you're going, oh, okay, I'm getting there. I can feel it. Yeah. It feels, I, I can feel that magical energy or whatever. I guess that's kind of the, the route the movie takes because they kind of show the, like, with invisible wall. Yeah. I don't know about any of you, but I also laughed pretty hard when um, Hermione has her moment and then Harry's like, what, what, what? And he turns around expecting to see a Death Eater unzipping the tent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I laughed yeah. pretty hard at that moment because I don't know. I feel like Harry should probably trust Hermione's casting spells. Oh, but I guess yeah, yeah. This is her at this point. Yeah, it just shows how on edge they all are. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. I don't know. I just laughed. So, um, we mentioned Phineas a little bit, and he gets a little bit of play in this chapter. Finally, um, Hermione has taken to setting him out in a chair, and Harry thinks that. Perhaps it's probably to kind of fill the void that Ron has left, um, which I think is pretty cute. Yeah. Poor Hermione, missing her man, and doesn't even really understand why yet. Um, so how much do we think that Phineas knows at this point? Because obviously we find out later that he has been tasked by Snape to fi- you know, find out where they are, right? I'm not wrong in that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so how much is he kind of playing along with, you know, kind of egging them on with all the everything he says about Snape and and Hogwarts and all of that? What? Well, I'm totally. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's a, he's a yeah, Slytherin. He's, he's using whatever yeah. he can to achieve his ends. 
that picture from later of you know Dumbledore and Snape and Phineas Nigellus all kind of together trying to okay what are we going to do how are we going to get there how's this going to work how can can you get in touch with it's it's this this little group of of the most improbable three conspirators you can possibly imagine kind of <laughs> trying to to manipulate things from from off scene and yeah it, I just find it kind of a little bit strange that. A portrait of Phineas Nigellus happens to come along on the camping trip from hell. You know, <laughs> it's a little bit of a yeah. little bit of a stretch. Like you know, wasn't even sure she was going to take all her library books, but she takes a portrait of Phineas Nigellus. So, well, it makes sense why she stuffed it in the bag, though. Right. Yeah, I get that. So it's it just almost accidental. It's a bit handy. A bit handy. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, what is she supposed to do with it after they leave Grimald Place? She can't just toss <laughs> just throw it, it somewhere. Out. <laughs> yeah. You know. I mean, at least he is there. I suppose if I were Hermione, I would want that around because it is some sort of connection to the outside world, even yeah. if it is just to the headmaster's office at Hogwarts. So it's her version of Potterwatch, kind of. Yeah, yeah at least yeah. at the moment, I think. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, no, I guess that, and then to go what I just said, kind of was a little scoffing at the idea that she carries this around. But on the other hand, yeah, that does, in her mind, this is okay. This gives us a connection back to you know, the, 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 the Hogwarts end, end of things, and in some way we can keep track of what's going on. And it's Hermione, it's so she's looking for the, the help of an adult there as well, not only an adult, yeah. but a past headmaster mm. of Hogwarts. So it's someone with authority and someone who should know what they're doing if, if they ever really did mm-hmm. need help. Someone that she may not necessarily trust, but also trusts. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. With enough learning yeah. that it, it counts to her. It's a huge yeah. thing with all of them in this book that they're all looking for someone they can look up to and rely on. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is Hermione. Another example of how well Rowling writes her characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's and a you genius. You see this, the subtlety of, of their mental state at their yeah. age, that they're suddenly being thrust into this situation of having to be adults, you know, which they're not in a sense yet. I mean, they're, they're, they're way out of their depth in some ways, but having to kind of figure it out. It's really impressive the way she writes that. Yeah. It is. I, I think, and that's something that we praise a lot, is Joe's ability to make teenagers real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this emotional stuff, for lack of a better term, is uh, is really strong, yeah. very powerful. Um, just, I've been thinking about this, is who do we think Phineas... Who do his allegiances lie with? Do we think it's to the school? Like, in general? I think he's he's magically bound to be... Yeah. With, ...with the headmaster. To help the headmaster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So but that I has think to be part of the, it, but. but I think for the most part, he's kind of in it for himself. Yeah. I feel like he's probably extremely curious about what they're doing anyway. But, I mean, he's um, just a portrait, so how can he be in it for himself? Well, all of the headmaster portraits seem to have quite a lot of the personality of the headmasters. Mm -hmm. They're they're the most magically enchanted of all the portraits, if possible. They've got so much of their knowledge and so much of their personality that is designed to guide people that they seem to be, Mm -hmm. you know, just that much more um, fully formed than than other portraits that we meet. Uh, Yeah, I would agree with that, yeah. But what, what if they wouldn't have ended up with a portrait of Phineas Nigellus along, how would that? How would they work this out? Well, Snape never how would have managed. How would Snape to give have him. managed yeah. this? 
you know, I mean, it's very, very fortunate that that happened. Would have had to come up with something else. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure what Joe could have substituted for this because Phineas Nigelis makes so many things happen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and connects them to different parts of the story in different ways. I guess maybe the two-way mirror would have been more of a key feature. Yeah, maybe he would have sent house elves. <laughs> he would <laughs> maybe. have pulled oh, Harry. <laughs> Either way, it would have been cut from the movie, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Um, so I guess since we're speaking of portraits, I guess we'll move on and talk a little bit about Hogwarts. Um, it's It comes up a few times in this chapter, obviously, because Phineas is at Hogwarts and he's giving them little bits and bits and bobs about what's happening there. And Harry is missing Hogwarts big time. He says that, you know, he's he's starting to pull out the Marauder's Map and kind of looking at people and watching them and hoping that Ginny will feel his stare when he's looking at her in the Gryffindor common room. A little bit creepy, but, but <laughs> oh, mostly I'm not going cute. creepy on that. No, I'm not going creepy on that. No, no, it's you mostly know. cute. I don't no. think it's like, that creepy. I think no, it's no. just... It is. Let's face it. It's super creepy, but you know what? It's... <laughs> but it's... At least he's not standing over her, actually. <laughs> <laughs> watching her sleep. Yeah. I saw that in a movie somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Um, but so Harry imagines Ron back at Hogwarts and he said it, the book says that he keeps waiting to see Ron's little little bubble pop up with his name there mm-hmm. because he's protected by his pureblood status. But I was thinking, wouldn't Ron be questioned pretty harshly due to oh, not yeah. only his relationship to <laughs> Harry, but the supposed spattergoit? Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's. He wouldn't have been protected at all. There. No. Yeah, that's what I thought no. too. I think isn't isn't they, isn't his poster one of the three at the? Although maybe that's movie, that's movie. thing. But I thought yeah. I thought he was one of the one of the one of the undesirables. Back Within in. the information that Harry found in the Ministry, it says that the Ministry believes that Ron is at home ill with Spattergoit, so um, he's not believed to be off with Harry at the moment. But saying that, you know, they were all spotted at the Ministry as a as a trio, so I think that cover might have been blown. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a bit naive of Harry to think that Ron would go back to Hogwarts, and it's definitely naive of Harry to think that Ron would go back to Hogwarts because Ron, not so academic, <laughs> probably not right. that is correct. <laughs> going back to school without his friends. No, I can imagine going back to Weasley's Wizard Weasley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like that thought was more a little bit. It's it's just an angry thought because yeah. Harry's mad yeah. at Ron, and it's wishful thinking mm-hmm. just to, to have some kind of way of seeing. Him. Yeah. And almost too maybe because that's what Harry wishes he could do. Harry yeah, wishes yeah. he could just give up and go back. And mm-hmm. so maybe he's kind of self-projecting onto Ron. And he even mentions that. He's like, oh, but wait, I can't go back. Hogwarts is basically the Ministry of Magic these yeah. days, mm-hmm. danger-wise. Which, I mean, I understand why he would say that because of Snape. But I'm not sure the danger level is the same, personally. Because there are other teachers there you know there's snape who is bad but qu- quote not really end quote <laughs> but there's um, also i don't truly believe that there's, there's a direct line to voldemort at the school at the moment even yeah. more right more kind of yeah through the caros than the ministry so i don't know i still don't see hogwarts on the same danger level as a ministry would've, it would have really put snape in a weird position though mm-hmm. it would have oh because yeah. he's secret he would he, he i mean his cover would have had to have been blown at some point. I mean, he can't, he would have had to sit Harry down and say, look, I'm really on your side, okay? <laughs> Work with me here. <laughs> because what else could he have there done? There would have been no way Harry sit down. The, the showdown would have happened a lot sooner had Harry got <laughs> oh, to Hogwarts. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Okay, so Harry finally kind of, I'm not sure he gives up the idea of returning to Hogwarts, but at some point he peels himself away from the Marauder's Map and from staring at Ginny. And they start to talk about the Deathly Hallows symbol, which Hermione finds in Beetle the Bard when she's perusing it. And, you know, she has Harry look at it and she's like, what is this? And Harry says, oh, well, that's Grindelwald's mark. I mean, Crumb told me. And Hermione is kind of flabbergasted because she had never heard of that before. And then she brings up the point that why didn't Scrimgeour recognize it? And I think that's a pretty valid point. Yeah, he spent 31 days poking all over the thing. Because I don't think it was it was very well known. Like, that connection between Grindelwald and that symbol. Because Crumb talks about it mostly by saying that Grindelwald had put it on the like on the walls and in books and stuff in at um, Durmstrang. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I, that's a very, like, Durmstrang... I can't speak today. Durmstrang <laughs> central kind of idea yeah. that it's connected to Grindelwald. So I don't think that anyone outside of that people who had gone to that school would think of that. If we think about how long it's been between Triwizard tournaments and the fact that, you know, international muggle wizarding relations haven't been that great between the different, you know, wizarding schools for for years and years and years. Maybe there really aren't that many students from um, Durmstrang that actually interact with students from Hogwarts. And Scrimgeour definitely went to Hogwarts rather than somewhere else. So if he doesn't have any knowledge of the Hallows, which he definitely doesn't seem to have, there is no reason for him to know it. Which surprises me because the Hallows is supposed to be this urban legend. But it's a very small urban legend. Like the the fairy tale is known yeah. more than the actual myth it's behind a, it. It's definitely a niche thing. And and I don't think it, it's not, uh, it's not really Grindelwald's mark. No. Right. Yeah. They're, they're interpreting it that way, but it's really just he was he's after the Hallows. That was a big deal to him, so he made the mark on the wall. Mm-hmm. People misinterpreted that that as being his symbol, but they're not. He was just putting down somebody some other symbol. Celebrating having the one, perhaps. Yeah. Right. Okay, so we're saying the Scrimgeour didn't recognize it because it was just too small of a myth. Yeah. To right. get. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's a child. It's in a children's story, but not the Hallows but it's itself. Not, not the, yeah, not the symbol. Not the Hallows. Like the symbol only isn't in there. The symbol only only the people that know the original myth know the symbol. Um, it's it's drawn by Dumbledore above the story in that particular copy of the I book. I suppose. Right. Yeah, it's it's not actually. Yeah, it's right. It's am I correct in thinking when it says it was drawn in ink that yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. Dumbledore himself it's, added it's that symbol it. as a as a little flag for Hermione? Hey, pay attention here. So more to the point, could have been a little more clear. Like but, all of the know. other stories in Beetle the Bard have a little symbol above them and have a little illustration. Why doesn't the tale of the three mm-hmm. brothers? That's a bit odd, publishers. What are you doing? <laughs> or, maybe or Dumbledore maybe got it, rid of maybe it. it does. It just doesn't mention that because it also Dumbledore added his own. Maybe. Right. Whoever art directed that book needs to. <laughs> or maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe Dumbledore used like magical whiteout to like white out whatever yeah. was actually there and draw on his own. The opposite of a revealer. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, huh? Um. So I guess since you we you know brought up some magical whiteout, we're going to talk about another little magical potion here. As I mentioned, Mad Eye's favorite brew, Polyjuice Potion. So. Hermione finally agrees to go to Godric's Hollow, and but she's you know, she has all these contingencies. They have to be under the invisibility cloak, and they have to take Polyjuice Potion, and I feel like there's something else. Um, 
Well, after they after she realizes they're leaving marks in the snow, she wants oh, to right. have them, <laughs> have them the march footsteps. along and erase the footsteps behind them. Right, and Harry's like, no, just stop. Yeah, but just, um, We don't even look like us. No. But I was wondering, the polyjuice, do we think that the, um, the Horcrux could affect physical magic like polyjuice in any way? Because Harry's, I mean, wearing the locket. Probably not, but I, I wanted I, to at least discuss it. I think there's a difference between potions and magic, like from your wand, because we does we do see it affects Harry's ability to make a Patronus, but I feel like mm-hmm. potions are going to be different, and the Horcrux seems more intent on messing with like mental and emotional states mm-hmm. and sure. physical states, mm-hmm. and that's why it affects the mm-hmm. Patronus as well, because that's a yeah emotional connection to create that. Yeah, so I, I feel uh, my inclination would be it's not going to affect yeah. use of a potion. Yeah, now, I was inclined. I was inclined to think that as well, but I thought it was an interesting, at least, thought anyway. Um, and Steve, since you had brought up the footprints, I laughed incredibly hard because they're taking all these precautions. And then they just apparate into the middle of the square, <laughs> and it's snowing. And so actually, they apparate. They apparate up the street. They oh. don't apparate into the square. Well, either way, it's their footprints just start in the middle of mm-hmm. the road. Yeah. <laughs> and it made me laugh. Plus, they're using their real names. And I feel yeah. like you should probably be using different names if you don't want to draw attention to yourself. I don't know. Just a couple things I thought. Yeah, once they, once they actually got there, the all, all pretense kind of fell, fell yeah. away and they just yeah. went for it. It really mm-hmm. did, actually. Um, and, and I think they felt safe there. Mm-hmm. They did yeah. feel safe there. Other. And and they leaned on each other a lot. There were a lot of really nice harmony moments mm-hmm. in this yeah. chapter for all the shippers yeah. out there. Um, and uh, rewind just a little bit before they left. I thought there was a, this great moment where, when Harry is talking to Hermione about Godric's Hollow, he compares her to McGonagall as he should. Yeah, and you know it's a parallel that we draw a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was just great that Harry kind of finally recognized it. But it's in for asking himself. for permission as well. It's, please, can I go to Hogsmeade, Hermione, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Aww. Well, he knows his place. He yeah. Knows his place. <laughs> <laughs> um, Speaking of a husband, it didn't even strike me as odd. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, and two, in that moment, you know, Hermione is like, oh, well, you never connected the fact that Godric Gryffindor, yeah. this place yeah. was named yeah. after him. And I was thinking, um, obviously they have, you know, a, a history of magic and they're supposed to read it for their classes or whatever. Obviously Harry never does. But is there not some sort of, like, welcome letter with a brief history of the house? Like, oh, this is named, nope. you know, Godric Gryffindor who was born here and this happened here. I feel like that's something that should happen. Cause, yeah, I mean, but it's a school. No one's got time for yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like okay, they, so you they didn't just... get a welcome letter when you got into Oxford and not explaining the history of New College. No, I I have to find it out myself. Yeah. Do you know the one when when it says his response is that he opened it just the once, you know yeah. which when that was, right? <laughs> but that's yeah. what's always yeah. bugged me about Harry. Like you've discovered this whole new magical world and you aren't in the slightest bit interested to find out anything about it. What? I know. No. Do you know, I know the one thing the one thing he got from Hogwarts from from um the, from that book, the one thing was the name of his owl. Yeah. yeah. He opened it up. He found the name Hedwig, 
went with that, and he never opened it again. Because <laughs> he says he only opened it once. So well, there you go. That was the one time. He opens it twice, doesn't it? Because he, he's writing that essay about witch burnings. Yeah, he has to open it a couple of times, but he's never actually paid attention to it more than once. Yeah. That's what he means. Yeah. I just get such a, such a kick out of that. <laughs> yeah. And then she writes it, that he smiles and it's like his, his face, his muscles are like stiff because he hasn't smiled in so long. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so sad. Mm-hmm. Brace yourself, it gets sadder. I know. Yeah, I know. I'm not ready for it. <laughs> they're, in, they're in Godric's Hollow now and they're, they're kind of walking around and they, they come upon this little church and it mentions that you know, people think that the little church is haunted. And it reminded me so much of the Shrieking Shack. Mm-hmm. And I just thought about all the ghoulish things that could happen yeah. in there, especially in a wizarding village. It could be anything. Yeah. Okay, so they they walk through the square and they come upon this war memorial, which I guess it never really struck me before. I mean, I understood the significance of it, but it's a statue of three people. It says a man with an untidy hair and glasses, a woman with long hair and a kind, pretty face, and a baby boy sitting in his mother's arms. And that is just so sad and also probably slightly weird if I were Harry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. um, he's never, you know, he's never had the real the chance to really interact with his parents. And here's this statue yeah. of them with him as a baby. Who knows how long it's been there? I don't know. I would say it, it, it was fairly recently, not recently, um, fairly soon. After everything yeah. happened, I would think within a, a year of it actually happening and them kind of celebrating, mm-hmm. yeah, the the fall of Voldemort. So you think that's what it symbolizes then? Oh yeah, or even just like, well, I don't know if it's the fall of Voldemort more, or if it's just like the wizarding community, the the wizarding community of Godric's Hollow just kind of mourning the loss of this little family. Yeah, that I'm sure it's they a war memorial. Yeah. But and like, it's, it's like a memorial to those lost in the yeah, war, and their deaths ended yeah. the war as well. Their deaths mm-hmm. was right. the fall of, fall of Voldemort, so yeah. they they become the symbol in, in the way that Harry is the boy who lived. You know, that statue is the statue of the boy who lived. Yeah, and I would assume that community, the wizarding community in that town, would be fairly close. I mean, mm-hmm. there's several of them there, so I feel like they would have felt. I mean, I guess they were in hiding. But there would have been some connection to yeah. they've kind of lost important this, people of their own. This mm-hmm. statue right. and the graffiti and everything around the house yeah. is is honestly one of my favorite things about this book. And oh, you know, all, know. The, all the times that I've gone to the studio yeah. tour, and every time I see that house, I just wish there was some kind of messengers messenger board that you like people who actually visited the set yeah. could write on i oh, want that to become a great idea, idea because that would just be so gorgeous i'm okay i feel like i need to pass that on i need to yeah. pass that on to my studio tour where they friends. could they could have the the ones that are yeah. in the book because but you know the books add. have affected so many oh, people's lives in the same way that harry does within the book so that that wall would become something that would be self-fulfilling oh. prophecy it would be amazing. I would love to see that. Oh, that would be beautiful. Oh my gosh. That would be amazing. I would, <laughs> that would be I I'm legitimately going to pass that on to them. Really. Good. Yay. That's such a good idea. <laughs> yeah. That's such a good I idea. I think every time I go, it's just, yeah. I, I love this moment in the books. And um, just the whole town of, uh, or the whole village of um, Godric's Hollow, just, you know, from growing up in the English countryside and having all of these little villages with a church and a war memorial and all those kind of um things 
um, in the little kind of thatched houses like their house would have been. Um, it's just this description of this village is perfectly evoking what it's like to have a sleepy village in the English countryside um, and for it to be exactly how I would imagine it, but magical and to be all about these characters and this story and all that kind of thing. I just, I love Godric's Hollow. This is, yeah, I, this is yeah where I want to live. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, you were telling me before that you, you found a village that fits the description in your travels. Yeah, I wrote about it in in that in my book, uh, In Search of Harry Potter. Um, we did uh, a lot of kind of investigating, trying to find a village, because as you say, there are many villages which fit this description. But we, we focused on North Devon because that's where, the, where it's supposed sure. to be, and tried to find one which had the right arrangement of road and... and um, which is why, which is why I mentioned no, they didn't. They didn't come into the square. They they were up the street because I can remember looking at the maps and trying to find one which had a street in the right place or a, or a little road coming into the square that had the war memorial that had the the church in the right place. So you would you would logically come down this direction. And we did find a a, a little village that kind of fit all of the descriptions and spent. Um, you know, we, we kind of started when we were there, we started at where, where they would have apparated in and then just kind of came walking down toward the church and um, past the war memorial. And very, very interesting. Um, the, the kissing gate, they actually had one pretty much like the ones in the book. But then we went to um, we went on through and it, it had just rained. And so there was this beautiful like sunshine trying to come out through the clouds kind of a thing. And the, what was interesting for me as an American, I was expecting to see a pointy, you know, steeple on a church, which, you know, in retrospect is crazy because that's, that's, that's very much an American picture. But the, the church actually in this little town was a, um, had the, you know, the Norman style square top on it. And we were, we were walking through looking at all the, the gravestones because our, our goal was to try to find at least one name that could have been a wizarding name. And we, we walked around, and um, I, my girlfriend at the time was looking, and, and she was a little bit off to the side, and I was looking down right along the back uh, fence area, and all of a sudden she said, Lily. And I turned around, she was staring at a, at a gravestone, and I went over there, and the names Lily and James were on this gravestone. No. And so we kind of stood there, and it's, it still gives me goosebumps to, to think about that moment. We stood there just kind of staring at this thing, just saying, this just can't be, <laughs> you know. Was, Seriously, really, this can't be. And there we stood in this little churchyard in North Devon. And, uh, the, Can the, you remember the name of the village? Of course. And um, I, it was funny because we stayed at the, at the inn there that night, and I remember I was writing that afternoon after we had, uh, before, before we went down and had dinner. And I was writing about the experience of coming into the town and everything. And as I was writing, some school kids were getting left off. And I, I kept thinking to myself, I wonder if they realize that I am right now writing that their little village is the, you know, dead ringer for Godric's <laughs> Hollow. Mm. You know, and they, oh. they were clueless, of course. But that was one of those moments in writing, you know, in researching that book and writing that book that was just amazing to me, just mind-boggling. So... I mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, now to be fair, James was the guy's middle name. Lily was was the was the first name of the of the woman on the gravestone, and the man's middle name was James. But even still, just to find those two names right next to each oh. other, 
on a, on a gravestone in this little village, which matched the description perfectly from the book, was stunning. Absolutely yeah, that doesn't amazing. bother me. I don't care that it's his middle name. Yeah, That's nope. perfect. Nope. <laughs> no, because uh -uh. I figured that was just like, because I'm a muggle, so I couldn't see it properly. Right. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to need to know where that was because uh, <laughs> trip planning time. Yeah, it's, it's in the book. <laughs> yeah, you have to find the book, I guess. Yeah. Huh? yeah. Um, it's it's funny that you mentioned, you know, kind of how powerful and meaning meaningful that moment was for you because, well, obviously, I think we'd all like to walk through there. But Harry has a moment where he's thinking about how meaningful it would have been for him to visit Godric's Hollow with Dumbledore yeah. and how much it would yeah. have meant to him to share in this history of you know what harry i think is becoming to realize how similar their lives were in a lot of ways yeah there and and i wonder if dumbledore would have felt the same way because i feel like dumbledore spent the majority of his life running away from that yeah from what he saw as this tremendous failing on his part yeah. and the tremendous personal cost that it was that he you know had to pay for his foolishness and his folly. And I, you know, I think that, I mean, it's just the simple fact that he never, never trusted himself to, to, to be with anyone for the rest of his entire life. You know, it's very, very long life. He's chose to spend his life alone because of the mistake that he made in trusting one person in loving one person, you know, a hundred years ago. And that he kind of, it's, it, there's a lot of similarities between him and Snape, who obsessively hangs on to the memory of the one person and the and the things that happened in the past. Oh, I'm so glad and, you didn't use the word love. Thank on. you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's that's no. Okay, yeah. I know where you're at with that. No, no, I would not use the word love in that case. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Um. I I think that that's true, and and it's sad that Dumbledore reacted that way but i suppose that's not an uncommon thing but then you just wonder because harry wonders what it would have been like for him what would it have been like for dumbledore mm -hmm. to go with harry and the two of them face that their pasts together yeah, yeah. they may have been very very cleansing and in, in, in an epiphanal moment for dumbledore to have gone back to godric's hollow in that mode yeah it would have been interesting do we think, so where is Dumbledore right now? Is Because, he's, I mean, he's, he's dead. No, I know that, but I mean, <laughs> I know. It's in another <laughs> book. Maybe, maybe, did I just spoil it for you? I'm so sorry. Damn it, Steve. No, I mean, you know, he shows up later at King's Cross, which is some kind of, oh, I'm not in always, Harry's head, yeah. but not in Harry's head. I don't think that that um, Dumbledore is really Dumbledore. I think that's. Yeah, Harry's Dumbledore. Yeah, I think Dumbledore has okay. moved on. He he went to yeah. Join so his he's family. with his family yeah. wherever that may be. Yeah, yeah. As Luna says, it's not like we'll never see him again. Right. Oh. So that's where he is. Yeah. He's finally got his his deep desire that he would have seen in the mirror of Erised. Socks. <laughs> no, being back together <laughs> with his family and probably wearing socks. Probably wearing socks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess speaking of getting back together with family, they're they're walking down the street, you know, kind of towards the church, and that they Harry's thinking about the place that he grew up in the little cottage. And on page three twenty three of the American edition, he says 
He was not even sure whether he'd be able to see the cottage at all. He did not know what happened when the subjects of a Fidelia's charm died. Um, false. <laughs> he does know what happens, he actually. Does. <laughs> but I guess... And that stood out to me a lot this there's time. There's a difference there where the Fidelia's charm on that house was a very small, little-known Fidelia's charm. Like, no, only one person supposedly knew... Um, the the truth and that person turned out to be the one that betrayed them etc but with Grimmauld Place you know they all knew the secret and it all kind of ballooned out from there um, so it is a very different thing Do you think so though? Because I'm not sure the Fidelius charm you know cares about how many people is included Well I think some of it too could be there was an explosion in this house okay. yep. <laughs> and I wonder if that, that influences magic in that, like the actual house, it was a magical explosion. So, yeah, I suppose that's possible. And it also, you know, was mm. is the Fidelius charm on the house or is it on the people inside? Oh yeah, probably the house. See, I think the one on, in Grimmauld Place, I think, was on yeah. the house, right? But this one is actually on the people. So he's wondering what would happen if there was a Fidelius charm on specific people, and if those people died. I think he's. I think he has never studied hard enough to know the answer to what's not all that tricky of a question, quite honestly. <laughs> he's he never should studied. have paid a little more attention in Flitwick's <laughs> classes, and he probably would have been know, good. It's a momentary worry that he's actually in this place now, and he's not mm-hmm. quite sure what's going to happen. So he's one of those. Right. Like, yeah, Where's this thing going to be? Where am I going to find it? Mm-hmm. Right. He just wants to experience that emotional moment so much. That, yeah, and I guess right. I'd never thought about the fact that it was on the people and not the house, so... Well, we I guess and I'll say that when we were in our version of Godric's Hollow, we found a nice open field with a gate that went nowhere that we decided that that's where it was. But, <laughs> but, you, but you couldn't see it. The Fidelius charm still exists? Muggles. Well, no, but, well, yeah, I, clearly, yeah, because I couldn't see it. So. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But Hermione can see it as well, can't she? Yeah. So the charm mm-hmm. has to have been broken for Hermione to be able to see it, um, whereas right. with Grimmauld Place, the charm was kind of passed on as far as we know. Oh, because you're saying, I never thought about that, because Harry would still be able to see it because the he was there. spell was cast yeah. on him as well. Whereas yeah. Hermione had no connection oh. to the house. But That's then right. again, the other thing would be that once they died, the whole of, you know, the whole of uh, the Wizarding World knew where they died and knew what had happened in that house. So does the Fidelius charm That's there true. break because everyone finally finds out where it was because everyone has been told? That's the way I look at it. I think that the charm broke at that point because the subjects are no longer alive. And then the, you know, the aftermath is quick, get in there and hide the evidence and throw a few memory charms around. And But um, that's the way I always looked at it. I never thought that it would linger. But um, they don't quite make it to the cottage in this chapter. That's the next chapter. But um, they do, in fact, make it to the graveyard. And... This, you know, the whole chapter has been leading up to this moment, Harry, as mentioned before, that, you know, yeah, sure, maybe the sword is going to be there, but he really just wants to go and have an emotional experience with the place that he grew up in with his parents. And before we get to James and Lily, Hermione and Harry are walking through the graveyard looking at as different people still using their real names, which I still find really odd, (laughs) but um, Hermione has a bit of a moment and goes, oh, look, oh, wait, no, sorry, I thought it said Potter. But in fact, she finds Ignotus Peveril's grave. However, we're not given a last name. 
Isn't that his know. last name? Yeah, Peveril. Peveril is his last name. Yes, I know that, but in this but chapter... It isn't, it isn't mentioned in the chapter. It's not mentioned. Oh. So what did she see that made her think it was Potter? Right. And also, I mean, that's clearly intentional because later, if we... if if um, if we had been given the last name at this point, later on when Beetle the Bard, when that's the tale of the three brothers is read, that would have been a connection that I think we would have automatically made. Mm-hmm. But we, the brothers' names aren't mentioned in the story. But what, do you um, have... Xenophilius mentions them. Yeah, okay. Do you have the yeah. book on you, Kat? What, what does it actually say in that line then? Because I always, I've forgotten that it hadn't mentioned Peveril. Yeah, sure. I, so it's, there's world? several different parts. So um, this line says, here, cried Hermione again a few, mo- few moments later out of the darkness. Oh, no, sorry. I thought it said Potter. And then Harry walks over and she goes, Harry, look, that's the mark on the book. And um, they start talking about it. And then it says, Hermione lit her wand and pointed it at the name on the headstone. It says Ig- Ignotus, I think. And then Harry says, I'm going to keep looking for my parents. All right. And walks away. Okay. Yeah, I just thought it was really very telling that the last name at that moment isn't given yeah. to us. Meant to keep us guessing, I suppose. The fact that it is Ignotus in that graveyard is kind of important. Um, because Ignotus is the one who was given the Cloak of Invisibility and therefore Ignotus uh-huh. is the one who is Harry's ancestor. So it just proves that, you know, his his ancestry, his line has been in Godric's Hollow all the way back to the original Deathly Hallows for Harry. Right. Yeah, Which... Which makes me think even more that James and his family had been living there beforehand, yeah, before definitely. the Fidelius term. And so mm-hmm. the Potters were definitely a part of this community and mm-hmm. this village, and their loss would have hit them hard. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I had never, um, I mean, I guess I had thought about that, but never made the connection. Because we, we don't know if the other two are there, because yeah, it's not mentioned. Yeah. Right. But I assume that they're not. And it's just quite a nice symbolism as well. You know, Ignotus is the one who gets the cloak the cloak is hiding for the potters to then go into hiding in godric's hollow it just there's all of that niceness wrapping mm-hmm. up into there <laughs> yeah. yeah it is for sure um so harry leaves hermione looking at that grave and he he's walking around and he he stumbles upon a couple other you know surnames of friends that he went to hogwarts you know he finds Probably a distant relation of Hannah Abbott in here. Um, we assume that he found others, but it doesn't really mention. But eventually, he hears Hermione's voice from far away, and she says, Harry, they're they're here, right here. And so he goes over, and they're at the tombstone of James and Lily Potter. And it's, it's mentioned in here specifically that it's made of white marble, just like mm-hmm. Dumbledore's tomb. And yeah. so I decided that that was probably a pretty important detail. So I did a little bit of research about the symbolism of white marble. There what I mean, surprisingly, there wasn't a whole lot, but most of what the website said was that it's a symbol of purity and immortality, which I thought was very interesting considering the Hallows mm-hmm. and the how entrenched that is in Harry's family history, the immortality. Because isn't it Dumbledore that puts the headstone together? For James and yeah. I yeah, I think so. I don't know about that. Oh, I, I was thinking of the one for Kendra and Ariana. Oh. That he did that one. Yeah, who... But. Does it say who does James and Lily's? Because well, it who would it be? It can't be Sirius, because Sirius is in Azkaban. Mm-hmm. I'm 99% sure that it's Dumbledore because of the quote that's on it. 
Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Um, and also the word marble is, you know, derivative of a Greek word, mar marmoros, maybe, which means shining stone. And they're usually obtained from Greece or Italy. So not a whole lot of info on the white marble, but I do think it's a nice parallel to Dumbledore, somebody else who was really important in Harry's life, who also came from, you know, Godric's Hollow. So, um, all right. And uh, the big one here. Well, I mean, I guess James and Lily was really the big one. We have that nice moment where Hermione puts the, the ring of roses, mm-hmm. which I thought was really sweet. It definitely made me cry this yeah. time. Um, I, I feel like as I get older, I appreciate different moments in the series. And this was one this time that, you know, when I, prob- when I read it the first time, I probably hadn't experienced a whole lot of death. But again, as you get older, that happens more and more often, unfortunately. And so it hit me a lot, a lot harder this time. So. The, the line that always makes me seriously cry every time um, is when Harry's standing there and it's the line that says he wished for the first time he was under the snow Aww. with them. And I, it just yeah. like destroys me mm-hmm. every time. I, like, yeah. I'm going to cry right now <laughs> thinking about it. Um, just, it's just so... You just feel for Harry so much in that moment of the life he could have had and, right. and the life inviting friends over yeah, yeah. and and the life he should have had honestly and to have this moment in the middle of such hardship as well like having just lost yeah. ron although not on, yeah, on christmas, christmas Day. on christmas eve like a time where he should have with been family. honestly yeah he should have been with his family he should have been with his parents and it just oh, it just kills me every time. Like I just I remember for the first time I was reading it, just like sobbing because it's just oh. I think we're seeing we're seeing a little of you know Joe again writing about her life experience yeah. because the death of her mother was such an important uh, influence on on the on the on the books on the on the story and on her life. I think we're seeing her kind of putting some of her own feelings into words of what it feels like when you stand there and you look at that, that gravestone. Mm. I think we're seeing that. I, yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me to talk about this moment. I haven't lost a parent, but obviously, you know, that's something that we will all go through at some point in our life. And I just, it's a really powerful, it's a powerful moment. And you're right. I, um, the fact that it is coming at such a hard time for Harry. Hmm. It's hard. Okay, well, moving on to the next grave we're going to talk about here, since we're in a graveyard, right? Um, before they get to this point, they find the grave of Kendra Dumbledore and Ariana. And there's a really nice quote, and is a part of a Bible verse, which I'm going to read here. Um, the verse is um, Matthew six nineteen through 24, and it says... Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one 
and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So I thought it was important to look at the entirety of that passage um, so that we know kind of where that is coming from. Obviously, the line on the tombstone is simply where for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't have a whole lot of experience with um, verses and this. So can you guys speak to a little bit about this passage for me, please? Yeah. Um, usually, so it's, this is, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of um, usually considered Jesus's like big sermon. <laughs> Hello. Um, and, and where a lot of, of really important things are, are said. Um, and usually this one is, t- it's talking about putting what you love and the things that matter in more spiritual matters um, and in serving God than in being worldly and uh, materialistic. Um, that the most important things are the things that, I mean, you can take with you to heaven, not the things that stay here on earth. Yeah, it's about it's about having your priorities straight. Is that you know if yeah. you're if you if you are if your priorities are on things, mammon is a word meaning money and materialism. If that's where your priorities are, then that's where your heart will be, and that's where your life will aim. And the the passage is basically saying. The most important things are, as you said, the, the things that are going to, that you have to have for a priority in your life are the things that are more spiritual, that are that are, transcend just stuff. And so that's basically what that's saying. Now, of course, what, we can discuss why that Dumbledore would have thought that that was a good quote to put on that headstone. Because I personally feel like he is saying, this was my treasure, this was where my heart should have been, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Don't let this yeah. happen to you. I, I would definitely agree with that, um, especially considering what had just happened to him, that he mm-hmm. was looking for power and he was looking for prestige and things that shouldn't have mattered as much as his mother, as much as his sister, as much as his brother. Yeah, so I, I think definitely this is Dumbledore regretting what he did in his youth and this is where he starts turning everything around, starting with choosing this quote for I think, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it could yeah. also have another meaning. So, with with it being on Kendra's grave, and, and normally you would put, um, you know, the the quotes on graves are are symbolic of the person within the grave, not of those that have been left behind in in general. Um, to to say where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. To kind of take it away from the rest of the meaning of that quote, but just simplify it down to this one thing. Um, it's kind of saying, you know, Kendra's treasure was her family. It was keeping Ariana safe. It was doing everything possible to protect her. Yeah. Um, so where your treasure is, there will your heart mm. be also, I guess, could kind of mean, you know, Ariana at this point is still alive. Um, so Kendra will always be with them. And, and Kendra will always be with her family. Yeah. In heart, at least. Well, also just the fact that Kendra died yeah, exactly. protecting Ariana, trying to take care of her. Mm-hmm. So just then if that love will live on after death kind of thing. And the last part of the verse where it says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. I can't be the only person that thought of Snape 
<laughs> no. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of there's definitely a parallel there. Oh well thank you. I feel and this is not meant to be flippant, I feel very enlightened, actually, because I'd never read the entire verse before. And I think that it is important to look at that stuff. So thank you. I very much appreciate it. Um, and with that, as I suppose we wipe our tears away from our cheeks, we um, conclude chapter 16 of Deathly Hallows. Which, of course, leaves us with our podcast question of the week for this week. Um, and we, we slightly touched on this earlier, um, but we didn't want to go into too much depth about it so that we can kind of hand it over to you guys to, to discuss and to think about. Um, and our question this week is going to be, why did Dumbledore never tell Harry of their shared history in Godric's Hollow? Um, they both have a lot of family tragedy connected with this village um, and they both have um, very kind of meaningful reasons to to return to this village and to um, learn more about themselves and their history um, by visiting it. But Harry never gets the opportunity of going there with Dumbledore, with, of going there with someone who actually knows um, about all of the stories connected to the village and knows about his history um he instead has to learn it through you know through gravestones and through hogwarts history and through um a history of magic and all of these books and all of these kind of passed down stories rather than a personal connection so why did dumbledore choose to keep this particular emotional story from harry um when it's so obvious that harry has been yearning for for some connection to his family for so long um even if Dumbledore didn't want to burden Harry with the, the story of the Horcruxes and the story of the the Hallows so early, um, as he always said that he wanted to protect him, why could he not give him this little kind of element of um, human family life that he so desired? Let us know what you guys think. Um, as usual, the thread will be up on the website, so please go and check out alohamora.mugonet.com and answer with your ideas. That's a good question. Do you think Harry ever makes it back to Godric's Hollow? I always imagined they moved there <laughs> after. Aww. That, that that he and Ginny raised their family there. You don't think they lived in Grimmauld Place? <laughs> no! I, I think Harry would have wanted to go back to kind of this idyllic little village and raise his family there the way he felt like he should have been raised and have that normal life. Hmm. That's sweet. I hope that's what happened. Well, uh, Steve, thank you again so much for joining us. It was fabulous well, to pleasure. have you with us once again. Absolutely love being on this show. Absolutely love it. Oh, good. We're glad to hear that. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's almost over, though. So <laughs> We've still got months what, the to show go. Is? We're, it we're is, only yeah. halfway through the book. <laughs> we do still have months to go. That's so you're true. telling me that when when this is over, there's it's just going to end? Well, if we told you... <laughs> Okay, well, never mind. All right, and if you would like to be on the show, listeners, go and check on our Be On The Show page at alohomore.mongolette.com. Like we said, we might not have very long. So if you want to be on, get on while you're guaranteed. <laughs> um, if you've got a basic set of headphones with a microphone, you are all set. No fancy equipment needed. And while you're on our website, make sure you download a ringtone for free. And in the meantime, if you want to keep in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at alohomoremn. Facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Our Instagram is Alohomora MN. Our phone number is 206 Go Albus. That's 206 462 5287. 
And you can always send us an audio boom. So it's free. All you need is an internet connection and a microphone. Head over to alohamora.mugglenet.com, press the little green button in the right-hand menu, and leave us a message under 60 seconds if you'd like to hear yourself on the show. And also coming soon, we're going to be on Google Play, so keep an eye out for that one. Um, but we also have our wonderful store where you can find house shirts, Desk Pig, Magic Liberation Front, Minerva's Our Home Girl, um, Obligatory Genius Moment, which we should have said many times today, but we were just implying it throughout instead. Um, and many, many more. There we go. We'll say it Obligatory now Genius instead. Moment. It's a perfect t-shirt for this chapter. Um, also, maybe mm-hmm. working on a little bit of a seasonal treat that will hopefully be coming out before Christmas if I manage to get it done in time. Um, so keep an eye out for that one and do go and check out our store. Also, make sure you check out our smartphone app. Um, it's called The Podcast Source, and it's free, and it includes all sorts of wonderful things along with episodes, including transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, and so much more. And now we're going to go dry <laughs> all our tears, maybe, um, from this very sad chapter. And before we leave, we just want to make sure all of our American listeners had a very great Thanksgiving. I guess by the time this episode is released, it'll be after, so we hope you all had a wonderful holiday. And that everyone who's not in the U.S. has a great weekend. (laughs) I'm Allison Sigurd. I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 166 of Alohomora. Open the dumbbox up. What's what's a good word to describe Phineas Nigelis? Obnoxious. I don't know what that word was, but it fit perfectly. That loud. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry.